Hello and good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the United States Center's online webinar series. My name is Brendan Thomas Noon, and I'm a research fellow in the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the United States Study Center here in Sydney, Australia. I'd like to welcome you to this online session where we will be discussing our latest piece of research in our series of publications on deterrence issues, co-published with Pacific Forum in Honolulu, Managing U.S. Nuclear Risks, A Guide for Australia by Dr. Fiona Cunningham. Before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands in the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted today to be joined by three leading thinkers on strategic and nuclear issues in the Indo-Pacific, all good friends of mine and of the United States Study Center. First, the author of the research we will be discussing today, Dr. Fiona Cunningham, a non-resident fellow with the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the United States Study Center, an assistant professor of political science and international affairs at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. Fiona is also a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace for the year 2020 2021. We're also very lucky here to have Dr. Ewan Graham, who's a Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Ewan was previously Executive Director of La Trobe Asia at the La Trobe University in Melbourne, and he was also previously Director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program in Sydney. Uh, Ewan has experience at the RIIS in Singapore and served at the UK government as a research analyst at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as well. Lastly, we're also very lucky to have Dr. David Santoro, Vice President and Director for Nuclear Policy Programs at Pacific Forum in Honolulu. David specializes in strategic and deterrence issues as well as non-proliferation and nuclear security. I should also mention that David has an edited volume on the US-China nuclear relationship in the context of multipolarity coming out next year, which looks really great, and I'm looking forward to reading. So the paper we are discussing today draws mostly on Fiona's deep knowledge, experience, and scholarship regarding China's nuclear posture and strategy, and is really an excellent guide to some of the most pressing issues surrounding the broader US-China nuclear relationship. Fiona centers her analysis and arguments around the risk of nuclear use between Washington and Beijing in the nuclear domain whether inadvertent or purposeful, and how the continuing evolution of the deterrence dynamics between the two powers is increasing these risks along a number of fronts, with some of these risks larger than others. These issues will only grow in importance as well, as we are luckily entering into a prolonged period of US-China competition, of which the role of nuclear deterrence and weapons will only likely grow. Fiona's paper is particularly timely as well because of how it links these broader and sometimes esoteric issues back to Australia. I think most in the academic and security community in Australia would agree that nuclear and strategic issues in particular receive scant attention in, here in Australia. And contrary to what some may argue, Australia does, not have, or does have a significant and influential role in these areas, both in the strategic sense as well as Australia's well-known history of advocacy and arms control and non-proliferation issues. So with that, I may turn it over to Fiona to give us an overview of her paper before we open it up to a conversation between the panelists and then turn to Q&A from the audience. So Fiona, if you'd like to give us an overview. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Brendan, for that really kind introduction. I'm really excited for this webinar. Thank you all for tuning in, uh, whether you're in the evening as I am here in Washington, D.C., or in the morning in Sydney, or anywhere in between those uh, time zones. Uh, so I wanted to hit on a couple of the key points from uh, the deterrence brief uh, and then a couple of the key analytic judgments from this brief before we dive into the conversation that we're going to have over the next hour because I'm really excited to hear uh, what my fellow panelists have to say and to, to hear from uh, the audience as well. So I will start off with sort of four key uh, takeaways that I hope all of you will, uh, will take away from this discussion. The first one of those is that things could be a lot worse in the US-China relationship than they presently are. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. While the broader US-China relationship uh, has 
uh, deteriorated, some could say, and tensions have increased quite uh, precipitously in the past 12 months or so. This area, the US-China nuclear relationship, I would argue is an area where the United States, Australia, uh, and China, and other interested parties should all uh, work hard to stop things from getting worse, uh, because they, there is certainly room for things to get worse and there's space uh, to keep things um, as they presently are. The second uh, key takeaway that I wanted to just note is that uh, the risks of nuclear weapons being used in a future US-China conflict, in my uh, judgment in this brief, are low, especially if they're used deliberately by one side to gain a coercive advantage. The risk of inadvertent use is higher, but still not as high as some have argued. And to take a quick aside, inadvertent nuclear escalation occurs uh, when uh, there is an unintentional or there is an intentional action by either China or the United States in pursuing their objectives in what's otherwise a conventional conflict that systematically damages some part of the other's nuclear arsenal uh, that could lead them to misperceive their arsenal as a threat um, and, uh, and uh, either threaten to use nuclear weapons uh, or uh, prepare to use them to some greater degree. And because the likelihood uh, of conflict, though, is rising, I would say, in general, over a series of US-China flashpoints, including but not limited to Taiwan, there are now more opportunities for these risks to be realized than there were in the past. Third, uh, I think the best uh, military strategy for the United States and China to counter, uh, or rather United States and Australia rather, to counter China, is one that does not rely too heavily on nuclear risk. And I'll go into this in a little bit more detail, but China's own military strategy, um, in my assessment, aims to coerce its adversaries below the nuclear threshold and doesn't necessarily anticipate that an adversary is going to be using nuclear weapons in a future contingency. So making nuclear threats against an adversary that doesn't think that these things are necessarily credible uh, in a confrontation between two nuclear armed powers um, is less likely to succeed in deterring the outbreak and escalation of uh, conventional conflict than what is a, a military strategy more focused on, uh, on conventional means. Um, so that means focusing on robust conventional military capabilities having adequate nuclear capabilities to deter the unlikely event of Chinese nuclear first use and limiting the risks of inadvertent nuclear escalation. And the fourth uh, key takeaway before I go into these judgments in a little bit more detail is I argue that Australia needs to invest uh, more in its broad-based nuclear literacy, both within and outside of government, so that we can have more informed uh, uh, policy making and public debate over how best to manage some of these risks. Because there are an array of options for Australia in thinking through some of these questions. Um, and it's uh, easier to have those kinds of discussions when there is uh, understanding of the sort of uh, Byzantine and, uh, and intricate details of nuclear strategy, uh, and in particular, uh, some aspects of Chinese doctrine that can help inform those discussions. So before we dive into uh, a little bit more of a, a panel discussion, I also want to provide an overview of some of those key judgments, in particular, uh, the judgment about uh, what's happening with the US and China's nuclear capabilities um, and uh, with regards to the risks of nuclear use. So in recent years, I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about China. That is my research focus. And I think it's the area where uh, there are more questions about what might be happening with China's nuclear capabilities at present. So I think we've seen uh, growth in the sophistication of China's nuclear arsenal in recent years. The US Defense Intelligence Agency has projected that the size of the arsenal is going to double in the near future. And we've also seen some new capabilities come online with China, most importantly, perhaps two new road mobile intercontinental ballistic missiles, the DF-31AG and the DF-41 and the intermediate range uh, accurate uh, DF-26 intermediate range ballistic missile that can carry both nuclear and non-nuclear warheads, which isn't the case for the longer range systems. The land-based missile force remains the main leg of China's nuclear force, uh, but China is also adding a bomber leg and continuing to develop uh, the submarine-based leg of its nuclear uh, uh, force structure. 
These uh, sea and air-based legs are less survivable uh, at present than the land-based force, but its submarine uh, force in particular is frequently cited by Chinese strategists for its ability to overcome missile defenses. And even with these changes, China has continued to stick by its long-standing no-first-use policy that it's had in place uh, since it first tested a nuclear weapon in 1964. The current force structure is compatible with the continued goals of a retaliatory nuclear posture, which is what China has had uh, thus far, which has the main goals of countering uh, nuclear coercion and being able to retaliate if China suffers a nuclear attack. But it does also uh, enable China to do some things that it hasn't been able to do previously. So because, just taking a quick tangent, any country that happens to have nuclear weapons can decide to use its nuclear weapons first, regardless of what it has said uh, in declaratory policy beforehand, Western analysts have often looked to aspects of China's nuclear force structure and operations that uh, help to confirm uh, this retaliatory force posture that China has had, because it made the force poorly suited for China to make uh, credible threats of nuclear first use. They included, in particular, a lack of low-yield and shorter-range accurate uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons, as they're known. And secondly, is the separation of China's nuclear warheads and its missiles in peacetime. And so some of the developments that China uh, has engaged in over the last decade or so undermine some of these objective signals that, uh, that uh, Western strategists have looked to as confirmation uh, of uh, China's nuclear restraint. So in particular, having a uh, ballistic missile submarine force creates questions about whether or not you can continue to uh, separate your warheads and missiles in peacetime. Similarly, there have been uh, reports that China is at least building the kind of uh, early warning architecture in space uh, and on its ground-based radars that would allow it uh, to move to what's called a launch on warning posture where its warheads and missiles would be mated in peacetime. Uh, in addition, the DF-26 in particular is China's first accurate theater range uh, missile. So in light of China's current willingness to abandon certain other longstanding foreign policy principles and its more muscular behavior in the region, these developments are understandably raising concerns about what China's uh, nuclear future might hold. It is worth pointing out, though, a couple of reasons not to assume that China is on the road to looking like the Soviet Union during the Cold War. In particular, there's no public evidence of a debate that China might follow the kind of Russian model of an escalate to de-escalate nuclear strategy, this idea that you could engage in limited use of nuclear weapons first to put pressure on an adversary in a conflict. Uh, there is also evidence that China's approach to strategic deterrence focuses more on threats of uh, first use of non-nuclear capabilities like its counter space weapons. And finally, China's decisions to build some of its new land-based missiles go back at least a decade, so their deployment is somewhat coincidental with the more muscular foreign policy it's currently demonstrating. Okay, so next, moving to some of uh, the, uh, the risk assessments that I make in this, uh, in this brief about uh, how likely it is that in a future contingency nuclear weapons could be used and also about uh, arms racing. I argue in this brief that uh, the incentives for deliberate uh, use for both China and the United States are relatively weak for three reasons. First, the stakes in a lot of US-China contingencies are too low to justify uh, nuclear use. Taiwan perhaps has the most potential, uh, but the PLA, I would note, uh, hasn't altered its military strategy uh, from the idea of fighting a limited, a limited or a local war, uh, which would mean that the means and costs of the conflict would also be limited uh, in recent years. Secondly, in some research that I've done with my co-author, uh, Taylor Fravel, that was recently published in International Security, uh, we were able to interview some experts within China who recognized that while uh, uh, first use uh, could provide a country with a military benefit, it has a huge political cost for getting acceptance of the changed outcome of, for example, a Taiwan conflict. A final reason uh, why I'm uh, not uh, uh, as concerned as some that China might use nuclear weapons in this contingency 
is because a lot of Chinese strategists are quite pessimistic that nuclear escalation can be limited once a nuclear weapon is used. And rather than seeing this as something they can exploit to coerce an adversary, they see it as a fetter on countries threatening their first use of nuclear weapons uh, instead. Uh, secondly, I'll turn to the, the possibility of inadvertent escalation. And as I noted in, the, in my uh, first couple of key points, uh, this occurs when one country's large-scale military operations touch the nuclear capabilities of another country in unintended ways that create incentives for them either to signal or alert their nuclear forces or even poten potentially use them because they become concerned that they're no longer going to have those capabilities if they wait to continue to be attacked. So I think there are two instances in which this could occur in a US-China contingency. The first would involve the United States conducting deep strikes on uh, uh, China's mainland missile bases or infrastructure, its air defenses, its submarine communications uh, stations that would be supporting both Chinese conventional and nuclear operations. And this, uh, some have argued, could signal uh, or rather could trigger nuclear use or signaling uh, by Beijing that the United States could mistake as preparations for China actually using nuclear weapons. Um, that said, though, I don't think that the, the combined nature of Chinese uh, uh, particularly command and control systems and bases is as pernicious as some have argued. Uh, and there are some interesting trends in the way that these things are, are perhaps moving um, uh, as China's rocket force uh, continues its, uh, its reforms and modernization. The second possibility uh, could involve China taking actions that threatened aspects of the US's nuclear command control and communications infrastructure. In particular, anti-satellite attacks and cyber attacks uh, do have an important role in China's um, plans for how it would execute uh, local wars in the future against an adversary like the United States. Um, and especially given the fact that uh, uh, China, uh, the United States' um, uh, satellite and uh, some of these communications facilities could also have roles supporting uh, US missile defense and conventional operations. Um, and the United States has, has made some clear statements in its most recent nuclear posture review that it would consider uh, the use of nuclear weapons if a country damaged these kinds uh, of capabilities. Finally, I'll just touch very briefly on the risk of arms racing because this is constantly uh, uh, showing up in a lot of media reports. Uh, in my judgment, there isn't currently an arms race between the United States and China, nor do I think that there is clear evidence that China wants to sprint to parity, so gain a nuclear, um, uh, a nuclear force that's a similar size to the United States, but I do think there are two pressures on China that could lead it to build up its nuclear force. The first is the United States trying to maintain the current edge that it has in nuclear capabilities against China. And the second is that steps the United States is taking to deal with the myriad of other nuclear armed adversaries uh, that it has to deter, in particular Russia and, and North Korea, uh, could put pressure on China to build up uh, aspects of its force structure or the numbers uh, to deal with things like missile defense in the case of North Korea, or to deal with things uh, like uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons that the US uh, has recently reinvested in to deal with uh, some uh, uh, European contingencies. And China will react even if the US isn't targeting it with these kinds of capabilities. So turning briefly uh, in uh, my last couple of minutes to Australia's situation in all of this, I think the key interest for Australia is maintaining the credibility of uh, its uh, extended deterrence guarantee from the United States and the integrity of the US alliance system more broadly in the Indo-Pacific. And this uh, overarching uh, interest, I think, um, leads Australia to have sort of three sub-interests. One is avoiding nuclear threats and use. The second is ensuring adequate uh, deterrence of Chinese um, uh, conventional uh, attacks at the conventional level. And the third is preserving the non-proliferation regime. And all of those th three things, I think, sort of feed into this broader question of maintaining the alliance structure as it presently stands. It's important to note, though, that uh, no conventional strategy Australia and the United States and other countries in the region could adopt to deter Beijing will be devoid of nuclear risk. Uh, but relying upon nuclear uh, risk to a great degree to deter some of China's uh, conventional uh, um, adventurism, if you like, 
uh, is less likely to be credible to Beijing, as I mentioned at the beginning, because of its judgments about the credibility of nuclear threats among nuclear powers. Uh, so I'll just touch on very briefly, I think, some of the things I think Australia can do going forward uh, in the categories of arms racing, uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, certain nuclear capabilities uh, and the alliance more broadly. So in terms of arms racing, one of the things that we've observed recently is a change in how the United States has gone about uh, attempting to uh, cajole China, if you like, into engaging in nuclear discussions from one that was more uh, coaxing and inviting during the Obama administration to one that is more perhaps coercive, one could say, in the case of the Trump administration. And I don't think that that's necessarily working and uh, what's more, it could end up backfiring by strengthening China's nuclear hawks, by making nuclear weapons an issue of nationalism within China and giving China license to build up its nuclear capabilities. So in the brief, I recommend that Australia try to pave the way for alternatives uh, to engage China, perhaps through the P5. Uh, secondly, I'll just point out very briefly, I think Australia needs to take a position on the role of theatre nuclear weapons in how uh, the United States should conduct its strategy. And as I mentioned at the start of my remarks, I think these weapons have their best role uh, in deterring uh, the unlikely event of Chinese first use. But Australia's interest in this regard might differ a little bit from uh, other allies, and I hope we can get into that in the discussion. And finally, uh, I recommend in the paper uh, that Australia use its existing alliance links to better understand US planning insofar as it pertains to things like inadvertent nuclear escalation, the kinds of contingencies the US is expecting Chinese uh, nuclear use to occur in. Um, and for the moment, though, I don't think that Australia needs a more explicit extended deterrence uh, guarantee from the United States or a dialogue. Uh, that is akin to what uh, the uh, South Koreans and Japan have with the United States that uh, relates specifically to nuclear issues, but that might be something down the track if nuclear risks uh, uh, increase for reasons either relating to the US-Australia relationship or uh, China's uh, actions. I've touched on the point about uh, Australia's literacy and deterrence and uh, in matters regarding to China, so I'll leave it at that and look forward to the discussion. That's great. Thank you so much, Fiona, for that overview of the paper. I might ask you one brief follow-up question, and then we'll we'll bring in Ewan and David to the discussion. Um, you know, you know, many of the changes to China's nuclear capabilities over the last several years, some of which you mentioned, um, SSBMs becoming a more regular feature, uh, MIRVed ICBMs and the DF twenty six, things like that. Some of the modernization pieces. Um, those these programs were being put in motion a decade ago. Uh, you know, nuclear modernization uh, takes place over that kind of time frame. So, what do you think China's nuclear posture, to the to your kind of best analysis and guess, will look like a decade from now? Um, and what do you would you think some of the obvious changes it would need to make and respond to some of the evolving strategic trends happening at the moment? So speculating into the future is always a very difficult, uh, difficult issue and uh, it's become a more difficult exercise when it comes to Chinese foreign policy in recent years because the changes have been uh, perhaps more significant, there's more, um, less continuity than there has been in the past. Uh, but I would, my best guess is that uh, what China is currently making decisions about with its nuclear posture are probably not decisions that we'll start to see evidence of for at least 10 years. And we won't start to see those systems come online probably or be fully mature uh, for another two decades. So if you think out ahead to that sort of a time frame, what might China expect the world to look like? And I'm glad I'm not a Chinese nuclear planner because that sounds like a pretty tricky set of decisions. Um, but some of the factors that I would point to that might be uh, uh, washing around within uh, Chinese decision making are as follows. One is uh, what is going to happen with the future of uh, the relationship with the United States, um, because I think that China's current military strategy is premised on this idea that it's coming out of a strategic opportunity period where it's periphery and its environment was quite benign and it's now gearing up for, I think, a much more uh, competitive uh, future. So that's one question. Will, for example, future contingency with the United States turn into an unlimited war or is the PLA going to keep on planning for local wars? A second question, I think China will be looking very carefully at what happens with US-Russia arms control. 
because if limits change uh, on uh, how many nuclear weapons, strategic nuclear weapons, the US and Russia are deploying, then this could change quite significantly uh, the number of nuclear weapons that China is going to need to feel like its uh, retaliatory capability alone could absorb a, a US first strike and be able to retaliate uh, with enough nuclear weapons to deter the US from trying in the first place. So that's a second question. Uh, and I think the third question that, uh, that China might be looking at going forward, it relates to the, the different kinds of missions that the People's Liberation Army might be looking at in the future. So I think up until recently, China has been very much uh, focused on a Taiwan contingency and making sure that it would block uh, Taiwan from declaring uh, more independent uh, uh, status. Uh, by increasing the costs of US intervention. And as the PLA becomes a more capable force, in particular with regards to that contingency, then nuclear weapons may have a different role to play. I would add, I think that last contingency is, is unlikely given uh, other aspects that are important within China's nuclear, nuclear strategy, in particular the importance of leadership control over when China uses nuclear weapons. Um, but uh, they're sort of three factors that if I were to stare into my crystal ball and guess uh, is where I think things, uh, the questions at least that Chinese leaders might be asking. That's great. Thanks, Fiona. I don't, oh, Ewan's back. I might jump, this might be a good point to jump in and bring Ewan into the conversation. And I wanted to now kind of bring up um, the main, one of the main things you talk about, Fiona, which is the uh, chance of deliberate use of of nuclear weapons in a future US-China conflict. So Yuan, I want you to come in on this. Um, Fiona argues that while both the risk of inadvertent and deliberate use of nuclear weapons are growing between the US and China, the chance of inverse, inadvertent use is higher, and we'll come to that um, just a little bit later. Um, but one of the reasons that Fiona says is that the stakes of most U.S.-China conflict scenarios wouldn't warrant deliberate use of nuclear weapons from either party, perhaps with Taiwan being an exception. You know, what's your take on this? And do you see a Taiwan conflict as having significant potential risk of deliberate use, nuclear use from either side? Thanks, Brendan. And congratulations to Fiona on a, an excellent paper. Um, very timely and uh, welcome, particularly in the Australian debate. I wholly endorse um, her call, call for a need for a, a more nuclear literate debate in Australia um, going forward. Uh, uh, so um, I wanted to get that out first. Um, in terms of the Taiwan scenario, well, look, I look at this as a non-specialist. I'm, I'm a, a generalist um, who looks across the, the broad spectrum of, of East Asian security. Uh, but it, it does occur to me that um, there's um, a forest and, and trees uh, issue around uh, looking at nuclear issues in, in isolation in China. I think the Taiwan scenario worries me because um, it, it is not something that, um, that may play out according to um, the, the rule book for, for local conflict, particularly if, if there's a military uh, scenario and the PLA um, badly underperforms. Uh, China is going to find itself in a very different kind of crisis, a crisis that is strategic in the sense that it brings the United States, Taiwan and China all into conflict, but it's also a political crisis uh, in Beijing because it gets to the, uh, the, the, the legitimacy will be on the line of the ruling party, of the PLA uh, and the leader of, um, of China, whether it's Xi Jinping or someone else in his um, issues in, in future. So under those conditions, I think um, what is the objective uh, that, tai that China seeks in, tai in Taiwan um, conflict scenario? It is um, primarily to uh, force Taiwan into uh, submission on its terms, and secondly, to deter the United States from, from, um, from intervening in, a, in that conflict in a way that um, would tip the balance. Um, so that uh, itself, I think, suggests there will be an, a, a powerful escalatory logic uh, if the conventional arm of the PLA underperforms. And that, um, I, I don't think that would go as far as uh, um, use of nuclear weapons against a civilian population in Taiwan. I think that's too far a stretch. But there are many things that China could do in that crisis situation, for example, to, um, to issue a, a nuclear ultimatum to compel Taiwan uh, and the authorities there quickly to to terms. I think that's um, that certainly 
it's an extreme scenario, but it's not a, an, an impossible scenario. Uh, and under those conditions, um, doctrine uh, goes out the window. It becomes really a political call uh, and one that will have to be made um, as, as we've seen with um, the casebook in previous uh, crisis conditions uh, on, in the realm, not just of nuclear doctrine, but human psychology as well under very stressful conditions. And I think that, that um, that's one potential that, that does worry me um, because I think that that point past will not be a, a, um, a predictor of the future. That's great. Thanks, you. And Fiona, do you want to respond or you, do you have any comments? Look, I think, I think what Ewan is so spelling out is a really powerful logic uh, with regards to, you know, how, how things don't always go the way that countries plan to when they're making, uh, you know, even their worst case scenario plans about using uh, things like nuclear weapons. But I would just add that um, for China to do something like issuing an ultimatum would require a judgment on the part of the Chinese leadership that they're likely to make a successful bluff. Um, and I am not sure that, you know, again, the rule book sort of goes out the window when you're in some of these situations, but I'm not entirely sure that, that, that Chinese leaders would be as confident that they would get away with that kind of a bluff. And so they might be put in a situation of actually having to make good on those threats. Uh, so I think that's the, that's the kind of key question there is, um, is, you know, if you're called upon to do it, are you going to go ahead and do it? Or are, um, are you going to suffer the reputational consequences of stepping back from that brink? And so I think for that reason, Chinese leaders would be very careful about uh, running that kind of a scenario and have tried to create as many other options as they can than going down the road of nuclear threats in that situation. Thanks, Fiona. David, I might bring you in. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Ewan. Yeah. Just a very brief um, point back to, to um, Fiona's um, counter to that. Um, I think the, uh, um, the fact that the center of gravity of a Taiwan conflict will not necessarily be US-China, I think that's often assumed, but really it, the key variable here is the willingness and ability of Taiwan to, to hold out. Um, and Taiwan is a non-nuclear power. So I think in, in, in response to the argument that China, Chinese analysts feel they cannot generally control nu nuclear escalation, one possible exception to that, again, is the Taiwan scenario for the obvious reason that Taiwan itself does not have uh, a nuclear capability and therefore um, will be out, outmatched in, in that escalation, all bets off wildcard scenario. So um, in, in terms of use of following through on the credibility, I also accept that there then it would not be credible for China to threaten, um, you know, nuclear annihilation on, on um, involving civilian populations in Taiwan. But there are other things that could be could be done. China does have uh, Taiwan does have outlying territory uh, or remote nuclear assets could be uh, in theory targeted. Or we might see um, a, a demonstration of nuclear capability in the Taiwan Strait or even within China itself. I think that would put uh, extraordinary pressure on Taipei's leaders under crisis conditions uh, to, um, to respond. That's a good opportunity to bring David in. And, um, you know, I think we have to remind ourselves that obviously US-China nuclear dynamics do not occur in a vacuum. Um, there, it's a kind of a multipolar situation. So, um, David, I want to bring you in here a little bit on terms of placing these uh, in the deliberate use, because I want to come to the inadvertent use, because I think the, the entanglement dynamics are really interesting. But just in the general sense, can you give us some context around how the U.S.-China nuclear relationship um, is being managed and, and what are the kind of multipolar dynamics surrounding it as well? And I think this is particularly relevant for the United States, because we always have to remind ourselves the United States is uh, managing probably the most, well, it is managing the most nuclear deterrence relationships uh, in the world uh, globally, not only extended nuclear deterrence, but also multiple nuclear um, adversaries or, uh, or other dynamics as well. So I don't know if you can give us some context around that. Yes, absolutely. First of all, thank you, Brandon, and the uh, U.S. Study Centers for organizing this. Uh, thank you for your paper, Fiona, uh, which I encourage everybody to read. I thought it was excellent. 
Um, in terms of um, you know the the, the U.S.-China nuclear relationship, um, as, as as Fiona mentioned, this is still uh, for, to, to Beijing. It's really the United States that still motivates uh, what China is doing. So it's it's pretty much uh, it's pretty much the focus. Um, over the years, of course, uh, China has grown increasingly. Uh, wary or interested in India in particular. Uh, North Korea is also a, a power that it has to contend with. And the Russia factor has uh, obviously, you know, grown in importance. Um, so um, even though China has been looking at the United States in structuring its military policy and posture and nuclear policy and posture, it's been looking around as well. Uh, increasingly, and so the, the multipolar context matters increasingly. That being said, uh, Beijing's focus remains the United States. And, um, you know, I can tell you, for instance, that uh, for about 15 years, the United States has run a track 1.5 uh, dialogue with uh, the Chinese to try and understand how, not only how China views nuclear weapons, understands nuclear weapons, and uh, as a way to try and establish a workable nuclear relationship with uh, the Chinese. And this is, um, this is actually a track 1.5 that uh, my organization, the Pacific Forum, has run in partnership with the Naval Postgraduate School and um, a, a couple of Chinese think tanks, including uh, one affiliated with the uh, PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And over the course of these 15 years, we've, we've learned a lot about how China approaches nuclear weapons and how the focus started by being exclusively on the United States and how increasingly over the years, China has looked at these other actors, India, Russia, and, and so on and, and so forth. Um, you know, from, from a US perspective, uh, the United States still um, has for, for years wanted to open up an official strategic dialogue with uh, China with the eventual goal to get to an arms control relationship. Um, and, you know, I'd have to, a lot to say about this, but um, from a Chinese perspective, the primary sticking point has been uh, the fact that the United States has refused to acknowledge, to publicly acknowledge that there is a relationship of mutual vulnerability with, uh, with China. Basically, that there is a nuclear deterrence relationship, uh, one in which the United States would would uh, not dominate. And so, for a long time uh, during the Obama administration, the approach was basically let's let's have a wait and see approach to to engaging the Chinese. Uh, let's wait until the Chinese are ready to engage and eventually move to arms control. And this was also, for that matter, the approach adopted by the Bush administration and before that by the Clinton administration. Um, that approach clearly hasn't worked. The, China ha the, the Chinese have not been willing to engage in dialogue. So patience, in some ways, hasn't worked. Um, the approach that the, the Trump administration has adopted since um, uh, 2017 has been you know, focusing on pressure, really. That also hasn't worked. Uh, and from my perspective, if we are going to get into a, a situation in which we engage the Chinese in dialogue and eventually uh, develop an arms control relationship, then we will have to balance pressure with a number of incentives. And we will have to look at the multipolar context because, again, that, that relationship um, works you know, but a number of actors are, are also involved. And so I like uh, Fiona's uh, point in her paper in the need to involve maybe the P5 process and a number of other actors to try and, and make that happen. That's great. Thanks, David. And just a reminder to our uh, listeners and viewers that you can submit Q&A questions in the chat because we'll come to those in a few minutes. Um, I want to bring it back to the allies a little bit, right? And I think this is the kind of central uh, point for Australia, particularly uh, Australia, and as Fiona argues in her paper, has an overriding interest in making sure that there's, and I think the Taiwan scenario, by the way, kind of emphasizes this, that there's a, uh, we have an overriding interest in a, an, a U.S., but a really a collective uh, approach to deterrence in the region that's based on conventional forces rather than relying outsized on nuclear risk. And as Fiona rightly says, nuclear risk is always going to be part of this equation, but we have to 
figure out what the balance is in terms of balancing the interests on deterring Chinese adventurism and, and uh, within the region, but also not necessarily uh, raising the risks of nuclear escalation, particularly perhaps with theater-based weapons and these types of things um, too far. And Australia plays a, a role in this. Um, you know, I want to, I, I don't know if you and maybe you want to comment first and then to David, how do, how does this, a country like Australia balance those things? And perhaps we can also get an inside bit on how South Korea and Japan also view those issues. I, I think in historical scope, um, extended deterrence has not really been front and center of the US-Australia uh, alliance um, dynamic or, or debate. Uh, it's really, it's been there almost as an afterthought, certainly in comparison with Japan and South Korea where nuclear threats are felt uh, far more um, proximately uh, not only from China, but also from from um, from North Korea, especially with the advances that it's made in in recent years. So, um, I think the alliances themselves are are very different in in structure when you actually pick them apart. In I'm talking about the Pacific alliances of the United States. Uh, so that also reflects um, their uh, the variability in the in the nuclear dimension as well. Um, South Korea is is almost wholly focused on the threat from the from the north. Um, China is there really as a as a kind of indirect shadow. It's not it's not absent, but it's certainly not the crux of of um, of the nuclear dimension of the alliance. For Japan, I think it is much more um, front and center that uh, they feel themselves um, uh, facing um, uh, uh, not necessarily nuclear threats from China, but Ultimately, they have the same problem that all non-nuclear powers have when dealing with nuclear powers that are using coercive levers, even if they're below a certain threshold, there's no obvious way to control or counter that, that nuclear um, escalation threat, except to bring in direct dependence uh, on, a, uh, on a third party, which has been the United States. That's worked well up until now, but I think, again, a general point about extended nuclear deterrence it tends to be more effective with smaller, smaller numbers of players and lower levels of threat. I think the more acute it becomes uh, and the more that proliferation uh, um, increases the, the complexity of the, of the threat, um, then I think nuclear deterrence really starts to come uh, under challenge. Um, Australia is feeling those pressures much less directly still uh, but we have seen deterrence enter the the Australian strategic de de debate uh, with a new um, defence update that was released in July. Now, there are, there's a very cursory mention of nuclear dynamics within that, um, but I think the point for our, for our viewers to stress in general terms is there is no firewall between um, conventional conflict and nuclear conflict. It's an artificial um, line. Uh, and although um, China has not gone down the road that Russia has, Fiona makes a very good point um, of, um, of, of you know, the, the, the Russian model of, of escalating to de-escalate, we don't see evidence of that. Um, but I think inherently um, the conventional um, and nuclear thresholds are going to get blurred, particularly as China's conventional capabilities continue to grow and locally challenge those of the United States. I think it's, a, it's inevitable that the United States is going to have to fall back increasingly on nuclear weapons to, to um, maintain the balance. Yeah, and I think you already may see that blurring on the American side between conventional and nuclear um, domains. Fiona or David, do you, David, do you wanna jump in on this? On, yeah. On, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, first of all, I, I agree with everything uh, Yuan said. Uh, I think that um, what we've been seeing over the past decade or so is um, growing willingness on the part of Asian allies to, to participate actively in deterrence, in extended deterrence. And I say extended deterrence, not extended nuclear deterrence, because I think ultimately it's more than just about nuclear weapons. And so in, in 2010, we created the U.S., Japan uh, bilateral extended deterrence dialogue and the US, Korea, South Korea extended deterrence dialogues to get basically a greater sense of enfranchisement um, for, for Tokyo and Seoul, uh, getting them a little bit more involved in, in 
not only the decision-making process, but also in, in capability developments so that they actually participate, they do deterrence more so than, uh, uh, you know, benefit from, from the U.S., the so-called U.S. nuclear umbrella, security umbrella. And I think uh, what we've seen over the past, um, I want to say, two, three years uh, in the Australia context is a growing uh, interest in getting involved in these issues. Um, and that's also why your center and, and Pacific Forum has, uh, have established the track 1.5 US-Australia Indo-Pacific deterrence dialogue, which is meant to try and build support for, a, um, you know, for more debate about deterrence issues and also uh, build knowledge and capacity on these issues. And from an Australia perspective, the other point I'll make is that there's also, um, uh, I think, great promise to not only build deterrence within the, the context of the alliance, but also to try and, and get uh, regional countries familiar with deterrence uh, and try and, and see how we can integrate uh, the deterrence question into the broader security architecture, especially at a time when China is rising and causing, uh, or at least raising a number of questions for, for regional actors. Yeah, no, I might give you the last word before we move to Q&A. Do you want to have any final comments on that? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I'm just going to uh, make one really quick note, which is David's mentioned that I suggested uh, working the US-China relationship more into the P5 is very much me borrowing from the great ideas of, of other colleagues who work on some of these questions uh, from, uh, in particular, a deep knowledge of uh, arms control in the European context in this case. My footnote goes straight to uh, to Steve Pfeiffer. Um, but I think we have some great opportunities actually in thinking about uh, arms control being more than just China and the United States to borrow and uh, and have cross fertilization across the European and, uh, and East Asian communities and thinking about some of these questions. So that's, I think, an opportunity we can look forward to. Um, I would just note really quickly uh, two things. Uh, with regards to Australia versus the uh, South Korea and Japan, I think uh, my co-panelists have also already made the point very well that these three countries all face quite different conflict scenarios that involve nuclear weapons and they play different roles in terms of their direct uh, exposure to nuclear threats and Australia's, I would argue, are more indirect. Um, but there's also interesting differences in terms of the nuclear latency of these countries that uh, Japan and uh, and South Korea obviously have quite significant uh, civilian nuclear programs as well and are, are discussed in those terms. They're also in range already of such, some of China's uh, medium range and intermediate range nuclear tipped ballistic missiles in ways that Australia isn't. So there's some important differences in the considerations I think the countries face uh, and it, it, it um, behooves the three countries to talk a little bit more about them to, to make sure that they uh, you know, are not working at cross purposes, if you like, for building up a, a, a robust deterrence architecture based on whatever uh, right balance there is between nuclear and conventional. The final point, though, I just wanted to make is that uh, is to touch on and, and really emphasize Brendan's point about the and Ewan's point as well about the lack of bright lines between conventional and nuclear conflict. Um, Information networks are now supporting both conventional and military operations. Certainly, I think within the United States, we have the addition of missile defense, which uh, you know can defend against conventional as well as uh, nuclear missiles, as well as against North Korea versus, uh, as Chinese experts will argue, against their uh, nuclear capabilities. And also, um, a similar delivery system is being used uh, in China's case for both conventional as well as uh, nuclear payloads. So all of these sorts of new technological developments, as well as ways of operating uh, nuclear and conventional forces, are creating that sort of blurred line where it becomes difficult, I think, for adversaries to know uh, what's coming at them uh, and what they might be striking. And that's, I think, a real challenge in managing uh, escalation in East Asia in the future. Oh. Hey, Brendan, can I come in? Go ahead, David, just briefly, yeah, because we want to go to Q&A. Yep. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry, you, you, you broke up. I didn't hear oh. you. Yep, go ahead, David. Uh, thank you. Just uh, an additional point based on what Fiona has just said. 
Um, I, I think, you know, to build up on, on what you said, what that means is when we're thinking about arms control in a, in a US-China context, um, we, need to, we need to think about two things. Number one, I think we can't have a strict nuclear arms control, nuclear dialogue. It's got to be a broad dialogue that, that encompasses a number of technologies because the, 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 the strategic relationship is such, it's so complicated that we need to actually look or, or have a broad approach to these issues. That's number one. And number two, I think when we, when we look at arms control, we have to think about crisis avoidance and crisis management first. Uh, to me, this is part of arms control. Uh, there's a tendency, of course, uh, in recent years uh, to look at arms control, arms control as essentially treaties meant to reduce uh, um, arsenals and, and proceed in nuclear reductions. I actually view arms control uh, in, a much, in a much broader sense. And I think we need to incorporate crisis management and crisis avoidance. This is really the priority, in the, in, at least in the US-China context. And it also means that allies have a role to play because they can, they can participate in such mechanisms. Thanks very much, David. Listen, we got about 10, 12 minutes left for a few questions. So I'll just go to one now. So we've got some pre-submitted questions, one from uh, Marianne Hansen, who's a professor at the University of Queensland. She asks, given that China has an explicit no first use policy, will a Biden presidency consider the U.S. adopting a no first use policy also? Uh, I wonder if, David, maybe you just have a quick answer to this, and, and Fiona, if you have any, have any insights. There's obviously a long debate over the last, um, well, eight years in the United States um, during the Obama administration. So I'm just interested about what your take on that is, David or Fiona. Maybe David first. Um, sure. Um, well, I mean, clearly China has, has had a no first use policy since 1964. Uh, it's important to note as well that there has been debates uh, in China about maintaining or, or not the, that, that policy. Uh, but I'll just say this about China's um, NFU policy. As, as Fiona mentioned, first of all, it's only a declaratory policy. It has the value of a declaratory policy. It's unclear whether it would hold in a crisis. And number two, um, the Chinese modernization process has been raising uh, a number of questions as to whether that policy can be maintained in the future. So there's a number of questions as to whether it's explicit or it's real or it will survive over the long term, even though I will admit that it seems to be deeply ingrained in the Chinese psyche. As to whether um, a, a Biden administration would adopt an NFU policy, um, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure a number of people will push for it. Um, I think a lot will depend on who gets the top jobs. Uh, it seems to me that there are a number of different perspectives about, um, you know, recommending an NFU policy. Um, and, you know, to, to me, an, impor an important point is that many U.S. presidents in the past uh, have considered adopting an NFU and all have assessed that this isn't in, in U.S. interests. And given the current environment, uh, I don't think that this is, this is the right time for this. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that a Biden administration would go that route, but I, I, you know, I, could, I could be wrong. Thanks, David. Uh, I don't know, Fiona, do you, you have anything major to say on that? All I would just say is in 27, uh, on the record, uh, Joe Biden, when vice president, made some pretty clear remarks suggesting that there weren't any instances in which the administration believed that it would be necessary to be using nuclear weapons first. Um, but that said, uh, one of the other proposals that I think is floating around is a sole purpose declaration, which is not a no first use policy, but the idea that nuclear weapons are only used to deter uh, or rather are used in that, uh, in that nuclear context. Um, and uh, I would just note that uh, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, John Hyten, gave uh, public comments um, at a uh, symposium a couple of weeks ago in which uh, he made it fairly clear that he thought this would be unnecessarily tying the president's hand. So that can give you a sense of the, the parameters of that debate. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so you and I might come to you on this next one and feel free to, uh, it's, it's a bit out, maybe it's a bit outside um, 
our collective experience, but maybe some general thoughts. So Daniel Steedman um, asks, how much does the panel see the ongoing Sino-Indian strategic rivalry acting as a complicating push-pull mechanism on the U.S.-China nuclear relationship? So how much, how much is the sort of ongoing tensions between um, India and China impacting, do you think, um, China's broader security concerns? Um, <clears throat> I'd be interested in what David has to say on this uh, too, but I think so far, although we've seen a much more escalatory um, conventional dynamic uh, across the, the land frontier between India and China, that hasn't bled into the nuclear dimension as, as much as it could have. In fact, I think we've seen less evidence of nuclear signaling by, by both parties than was the case in, in the less serious Docklam crisis um, a few years ago. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the uh, um, the, the broader um, threat uh, threat perception uh, is growing in India uh, that China is going to um, use um, coercive tactics, uh, and including um, challenging India in, in direct territorial terms across the the frontier. So that gets to a very uh, core existential uh, security question for for India. Uh, and it will no doubt um, eventually uh, have some impact um, on, on India's nuclear uh, force posture. Um, we've seen, I think, uh, the, the general embrace of the United States by India um, is, is, is going to increase. We're, we've just had a, a quadrilateral meeting take place in Tokyo where um, the uh, Indian foreign minister gave um, really quite forward um, comments not in a nuclear um, uh, dimension, uh, but clearly that the urge to work more closely with um, with U.S. Um, uh, and its allies uh, in in a um, a kind of proto coalition. That's where I really see the uh, the influence, rather than in um, the, the direct nuclear relationship. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really good point, you in that there hasn't been as much nuclear rumors, uh, is one way to put it, um, as was during the Dolphin standoff in 2017, where there was some really worrying reports coming out about um, mobilization and, and other sorts of things in the Indian media. So uh, that is a good thing. David, we just have a few minutes. Do you want to, and I want to fit one more question in, do you have any quick points on, on this one? Uh, no, I would, I would agree with what Yuan said. Basically, I haven't seen any nuclear signaling. I think it's, uh, it's possible that it will change the dynamic, but this is the kind of thing that we'll have to see over the long term. But um, I was worried about it initially. I doesn't seem to have had any, any nuclear, uh, anything significant in the nuclear dimension. Great, we'll do one last question here um, from our friend, Ashley Townsend. So Fiona, he asks, Fiona writes, the United States has recently deployed low yield warheads on submarines that could carry out limited nuclear strikes in East Asia. So do you, Ewan and David, agree with Fiona's judgment that this is a destabilizing move? So this is the, the Trump administration's push to put low yield warheads on, um, and I think Fiona, you're talking about the ICBMs here on US submarines. I know that there's also a sea-based cruise missile sort of longer in the works, but they've done an immediate upgrade on their uh, low-yield ICBMs on submarines. So, do you, David, you and I'm not sure if you guys have any, but do you think this is a destabilizing move? move? There was a lot of debate about this at the time. So, no, no one's going first. So yeah, you I'll, go, I'll David. Go <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, um, is that is that causing trouble to strategic deterrence? Uh, I, I would tend to think it doesn't. I think it could strengthen deterrence, but I also see a potential for escalatory steps in, in a number of scenarios. So I, I, I don't think you can have a clear cut view on this. I, it, it can certainly strengthen deterrence, but these, these weapons are really meant to address the Russia problem more so than uh, anything that we see in East Asia. So I, this is how I look at it, I guess. Ewan, do you have any comments on that? Any thoughts? Well, only to say that it, it's another evidence point that we're um, we're moving back to the future because I mean this was the case during during the Cold War that the United States had um, uh, nuclear weapons deployed across its its surface fleet 
Um, and I think that we are seeing some of some repeated uh, dynamics, um, albeit through a, a more complicated threat lens in which we have multiple players uh, and, and China, not, not least the focus of US naval attention. So um, it, 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 the, the, the basic underlying uh, instability question is, I think the more players you have, the more complex the dynamics that holds. Yeah, absolutely. And actually that puts us right on time. So I might wrap us up. So I'd really like to thank our panelists today, Fiona, David, and Ewan. It has been, I think, a really excellent discussion. Um, I'd like to remind our listeners that today's session and past events are all available on the USSC website to listen to, and also to uh, be sure to tune in for our next webinar, which is this Friday on the 9th of October. It will be a debriefing of the vice presidential debate, which I think is tomorrow. So thanks to everyone again, and uh, thanks for our panelists. It's been a great discussion, and thanks, Fiona, for your paper. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Hey, thank you, everybody. Thank you. That was a great discussion. Thanks, everybody, for engaging with my musings. <laughs> fantastic. See you all. See you all later. Thanks very Take much. Care. Well, thanks so much, Brendan. Yeah. That was a, was a great, um, a great discussion. Easy. Yeah.